Hi everybody, my name is Pat Hogarty and welcome back to California Real Estate Practice, uh, Real Estate 310. This happens to be show number 20. So we're getting close to almost being uh, two-thirds of the way done. Uh, I think when I did the math, we have something like about 32 shows that we actually do. So we're moving along pretty well. The book is looking a little bit thinner when I take a look at it here. We're starting, I think we've passed the halfway point definitely. Uh, we're going to be talking about the stuff that's in uh, Chapter 10. So if you include 10, we, we don't have that many chapters left. What we're going to be talking about today is something called, today and the next show, is going to be called taxation. And taxation is something that we really need to keep in mind uh, when we're talking and working with our clients. Uh, the purpose of what we'll talk about over the next couple sessions, the next couple shows, is not to make you a tax expert, but it's more or less for you to identify when clients need to be aware of decisions that they may have may have a tax consequence and that they do need to talk to their accountant, especially when we're talking about things like the sale of real estate or the purchase of real estate, anything to do with the sale or purchase of real estate, they really should get in the habit of talking to their tax advisor. So we're going to talk about the different types of taxes that they're involved in real estate, and we're going to spend some, uh, some time with it. What I'm going to do is I'm going to move over here. I'm going to switch something off my document camera, <clears throat> and I'm going to put up a little diagram that they have that's in the beginning of the chapter, and it kind of gives you an idea of what kinds of taxes that we're going to be talking about. And grouped in this, they've included several different kinds of taxes, and I'm just going to go over with them basically so that you're familiar with it. The different types of taxes that you're going to run in with in real estate and that this chapter talks about is number one is property taxes. Property taxes are taxes that are normally paid to, in most cases, like in Sacramento, if the property is located in the county, they're, they're money that is coming in from the ownership, from people that own homes, and that money is utilized to pay for things such as uh, schools fire departments, police departments, water districts, things like this. So we'll be talking about that. Second thing we're, that we're going to be talking about is something called special property taxes. There are times in which the property taxes that are normally collected on your real estate are not enough to pay for things like improvements in your areas, like streets, curbs, gutters, uh, water, new water systems, or whatever. And you may find that you're going to be dealing with something called the special property taxes. Uh, to raise money in order to fund that. The third thing is something called, and this is a fairly minor tax, it's called the documentary transfer tax stamps. They are, uh, the way that it works is for every $500 that you have when you transfer a piece of property, you're going to pay 55 cents. For every $1,000, it's $1.10. So, for example, if you sold a piece of property that was worth $110,000, you would pay $110 in documentary transfer taxes. It's a very small tax, but it's something that uh, you want to be aware of. There's another type of tax we're going to talk about. It's called gift and inheritance. You're going to find out that people, you cannot just necessarily give property away, that there is tax consequences that need to be taken into consideration if you're going to be, for example, gifting uh, property to children, to uh, charitable organizations or whatever, and also there's something called inheritance taxes that may come into play if you're going to die, when you die and leave property to somebody else. May, notice I said the word may. 
And then finally, one of the biggest ones that we need to be concerned about, and that's income taxes. So those are the basic areas that we're going to be talking about when it comes to taxes. And what I'm going to do for a minute is sort of jump back here a little bit and then go back forward. In your book, they talk about starting out with property taxes. They mention, and I'm going to kind of uh, go through this a little bit at a time. Uh, I'm going to read this little statement and make sure that we're on uh, track. Property taxes says, the city and the county receives most of its operating revenue from the assessment and collection of real property taxes. Now, what you want to do is keep in mind, you know, this will make sense when I kind of explain this to you. The federal government, in other words, you, in Washington, D.C., the federal government receives most of the revenue that they need to run the country from the income tax system. In other words, when you pay your income taxes at the end of the year, or if a company, a corporation, or a partnership is paying taxes, income taxes, they are normally going to the, uh, to the federal government, the federal income taxes are. We also have in this state, because some states don't have this, we have a state income tax. And by the way, in some cases, the federal income tax law and the state income tax law may be the same, or the same... Uh, sort of guidelines may apply and in some cases they don't apply so they're two different entities but the state gets most of its essential money to operate the government to hire people uh, to pay for various kinds of programs in the form of income taxes they also get money from things like gasoline taxes they get money from uh, sales taxes when you get ready to uh, you go into the store and you buy your hamburgers at McDonald's and you're paying that six or seven and a half percent sales tax, that's going to the state. Okay, so that's where the state gets its money. So we have the federal government where they get their money, the state where they get their money. Now the county, the county which typically is providing things like schools, fire departments, police departments, uh, all those kinds of things are paid for by and large coming out of the property taxes that we as property owners pay on a yearly basis. So what I wanted to do is give you an idea of where the revenue comes from the different, uh, different sources of revenue that these, these government organizations use in order for them to operate on a, on, a, on a daily basis, if you will. The one thing that they do mention here that we need to be aware of is it says ad valorem means according to value. Real property is, is assessed or reassessed each time it is transferred, sold. The property tax is set at 1% of the selling price of the market value uh, of the property. The thing that you want to keep in mind is, is that the, all they're really trying to say there is the fact that the higher the price of the sales price of the property, the higher the new property taxes are going to be. And I'll talk more about that in a minute. Okay. Now to move from there, I want to also bring up a couple other terms that are in your book so that you're aware of who these people are. We have somebody that all counties have called a county tax assessor. And it says the county tax assessor is, is the county office who is responsible, f uh, who has the responsibility of determining the assessed value of the land improvements, personal property used in business. So they're taking care of not only real property, but also personal property. For example, if you own a boat or you own an airplane, you're going to find out that you may very well have to pay some form of taxes on owning that to the county in which it happens to be 
registered or in some cases actually located, physically located, a very important thing. But it's the county, it's kind of like the county tax assessor is the one that makes the decision on how much the property taxes should be on a piece of property. That's their responsibility. They don't collect the taxes, they just determine how much you owe them. Uh, and I'm not sure where in the book it's located, but the county, oh, here it is, the county tax collector, on the other hand, <clears throat> they're the county officer that actually collects the taxes from you. They're the ones that send you the tax bill. They're the ones that you make the check out and remit the check out back to. The importance about this is the fact is that, for example, if you had a disagreement with your tax bill based on the fact of how much should be charged on your property, uh, as an example, you may uh, say, you know what, I bought a piece of property a couple years ago, and I think I may have spent too much money for it, or maybe I did some kind of improvements on it, and, I, and you're assessing me too much money for the improvements that I did. The person that you're first going to deal with is going to be the tax assessor. Uh, and the reason why they keep the offices separately is so that if you could imagine, if you had the ability, if you were the collector, to also figure out how much people are going to pay in taxes, it would be kind of like putting the, uh, the fox in, the, chick in, uh, in uh, the chicken house, if you will. So you keep the two of them separate. So anyway, if you have a disagreement on the assessed value, you talk to the property tax assessor. If you are not paying your taxes or if your bills are late, you talk to the property tax collector. Two different offices, two different entities, two different officers within the county. Okay? The next thing that we want to talk about is something called Proposition 13. And Proposition 13 was a, uh, just so that you know, in California, unlike, let's say, some other states, we have a system in which the public is allowed to put what we call initiatives on the ballot. That the same ballot that we vote when we vote for the president or the vice president or the new governor or whatever, we have this initiative process. And, and over the years, there's been a lots and lots of different initiatives. And back in the 70s, what happened is, is that there's this uh, thing we call Proposition 13 that was a proposition that was actually on the ballot at the time. That, you know, that just happened to be the way it was assigned. It was also called the Jarvis-Gann Initiative. And the, conce the concept behind this was that people that owned property turned around and said, you know what, every time we go back to the county or the cities and we say to them, listen, I want you to stop spending so much money. You're not spending our money. We're the property owners in the right way. And the county may have turned around and had some sort of, you know, many of them in a lot of cases had reasons, well, listen, we need to, you know, uh, we, want, we need to put money in this library or we need to spend it over here. In other words, the counties, from a taxpayer standpoint, were sort of acting a little bit, if you will, as, as far as they were concerned, a little bit irresponsible. And they were almost underneath the thing is like, okay, we'll spend the money and don't worry about it. If we need more money, we'll just raise the property taxes. And so finally what happened is, is under this initiative, you know, people said, listen, if we can't control how you spend your money, then we're going to control how much money you're going to get. In other words, we're going to control the well. We're going to stop how much money you're going to get, be getting from the property tax, the people that own ta uh, property. So what they did is they put this initiative on the ballot. The public voted for it. And essentially what it said was, it said for now on, and there was a period of time in which they went back and reassessed some property at different rates, but the point here is, is under Proposition 13, it said for now on, 
what's going to happen is that the, the amount of money that a county can turn around and collect in property taxes on a piece of property when it, you know, is going to be based on 1% of its sales price. So what that essentially means is if we sell a home and it sells for $300,000, our property taxes for one year will be $3,000. If we sell for $400,000, it will be sold for $400,000. Our property taxes will be $4,000 a year. If it's $500,000, it'll be $5,000 a year. So what it does is it limits how much money can that the county is going to receive from uh, the properties. Now, a couple things to keep in mind is that some of the arguments that people had when this initiative was passed is they said, you know what, you're cutting off the money, so consequently what we're going to have to do is do things like maybe cut back on some services. I mean, when they passed the initiative, they said, oh, my God, we're going to have to fire all the police. We're going to have to turn around, and, and we won't be able to fight fires. We're going to have to close all the libraries. And to a large extent, uh, there were a lot of or some of those things that did happen. There have been libraries that were closed. There were libraries that had to go on. Uh, maybe they were only open a couple days a week. But essentially what it was is just saying to people, listen, you guys have got to manage our money better. And that was the whole purpose of this initiative. Um, I'm just going to kind of read through a little bit of this so that we're familiar with it. It says, Proposition 13 limits the amount of taxes to a minimum of 1% of the March 1st, 1975 market value. So what they essentially did is they went back as far as 1975 if you happen to own the property. Today, most of the people that have owned the property during that period of time have actually sold them and they've been reassessed. But it says... Um, Okay, 1% of, of 1975 market value of the property plus a cumulative increase of 2% in the market value of each year thereafter. So anyway, your biggest concern as a real estate agent is to make sure that when you're working with your clients who might be coming from some other community, maybe out of state, that you're able to explain to them how the property taxes are levied and what they actually cost. That's what's really probably important out of this whole thing. Um, anyway, so that pretty much takes care of that little bit of it. Uh, they do have a section on here. Let me get this up on Proposition 13 that talked a little bit about the actual proposition, the various sections, so that for those of you that are interested, you can go through here and start reading or researching this. I mean, some people don't necessarily care one way or the other. Some people want to know a lot of in-depth knowledge about the actual proposition itself. So you can start doing your research and read through this if you want to, to become more familiar with this topic. Okay? So anyway, it has, it'll help you start your research in that part of the book. The next thing that we want to do is under transfers, one of the things that we need to do is to know when we are, uh, when would we be reassessed. And what it's doing here is it's giving you something here. It's calling triggers. Can, triggers can, um, trans, sorry, transfers can trigger reassessment under Prop 13. So what they're doing here is they're saying, as stated in Prop 13, determines the property value rates when the property changes ownerships. What contributes to the change for purposes of establishing a new valuation is not always easy to define, and Figure 13-3 uh, shows when transfer changes are required. And um, I think what's important about this is to take a look at when this is going to happen. And so what they do on this page is they give you a list of 
what's going to tra trigger this reassessment. So it stands to reason that if I decide to sell my home to somebody that I have absolutely no relationship with, no personal, that's not father, mother, sister, brother, aunt, uncle, there's no relation, it's just a regular person, that's going to trigger it. But there are times when I may want to transfer a property from myself to somebody else and not have it triggered. And so what they're doing is they list these down here. So we're going to go through this for a minute. It says, uh, do require reassessment and do not require reassessment. Okay, And these are questions you're going to get from your clients. So you want to be aware of this or at least to know where to go to start doing your research. So for example, do require reassessment if you purchase or change the ownership for, for consideration means for money. Consideration means money or for some value. In other words, I change the ownership and, I, and I'm taking, somebody's going to give me a, um, a car or an airplane or something. That's the consideration. If, that, if that's the case, I'm going to get reassessed to the new value. Okay. Another one here is transfers between husband and wife. No. Okay, so those are things that are important when we're talking about things like if you know, so you're going to talk about divorces or you're going to talk about anything. These are things that you just need to be aware of. You need to go further into. You just can't say yes or no. You need to do more research. Uh, transfer the property to a joint tenant other than the person who created the joint tenancy, then you need to have that. Essentially what we're talking about is that, that, would, invent, that would actually involve a sale is what would happen. Uh, creation down here creation transfer or termination of a tenancy in common when a proportional ownership interests are changed this basically means is that I would maybe have a tenancy in common and what would happen is is that I had we had the way we had it is we had one person had 25 percent one person had 25 percent and another person had 50 percent and what we're talking about in that instance is when we turned around and the person that had 25% sold their interest to the other person that had 25% interest. That would trigger the reassessment. Okay. Uh, transfers of interest in real property between corporations, partnerships, or any other person except uh, mere changes in method of holding title. Okay. This means here that if I owned a piece of property that I've owned for a number of years, and I decided to go into, say, the auto body repair business or the garage repair business, and I decided to transfer my property from me to the corporation that's now going to be operating that business, that's going to be operating the auto body repair business, that means I'm going to, that's going to trigger a reassessment of property taxes. It's going to raise the value. Uh, Acquisition and control of a corporation which owns the property. Okay, let me see. Foreclosures of a lien. So when the property is sold for because you don't owe money and the new person that's buying the property, it's going to be reassessed. So if I had a property I owned that was worth $200,000 and the property taxes were $2,000 a year and for whatever reason I lost my job, I got sick, something happened, I couldn't make payments anymore and it got reassessed or I mean got sold at a foreclosure sale, that new person buying it is going to pay the increase if there is one in property taxes. Uh, creation, transfer, or termination of a leasehold interest in a taxable property. Okay, same thing if you have a leasehold interest and you terminate it. Finally, exchanges of real property. So if you're going to use your house, exchanges the way that works is like as if you're using the property that you currently have is maybe as a down payment to buy another house. Okay, those things will trigger uh, a reassessment. 
okay? And then finally, trans transfer by gift or inheritance, except transfers between spouses, okay? So if you give your property to somebody, you're going to end up, they're going to end up with new property tax that they're going to have to pay. These are the ones that say they don't require a reassessment. We already talked about the first one, transfers between husband and wife. Second thing is transfers of property into a joint tenancy where the original owner is one of the joint tenants. So essentially what we mean is we may have taken the property as title. We may have had it as tenants in common. We may have said we both have an undivided 50% interest in the property. And for whatever reason, we decided that we wanted to hold it as joint tenants because in case, you know, from an estate stand planning standpoint, in case one of us dies, the other one would automatically get it, okay? If you do that, you're just more or less changing the title to the property. You're not transferring your interest at all, so therefore you're not going to have an increase in your property taxes. Uh, if you have a return to the property, uh, return of property to a person who created the joint tenancy, you don't have that. Okay, transfer of property to or from a trust which is revocable for the benefit of the grant or the spouse for which uh, reverts back to the grantor. Okay, here's what we're talking about here. Again, from an estate planning standpoint, people may decide after they visit with an attorney that the attorney recommends to them that, listen, instead, you know, because when you die, you have two different ways that your estate is handled. One way is you have a will, and that will, you know, has your last will and testament where you want your property to go to. Uh, and then what happens is, is that will is, writ is read by somebody called a probate judge in a probate court. The probate judge sits down, looks at the will, makes sure the will is valid, Make sure that the witnesses are really witnesses. They do all that. They make sure it's correct. They make sure if there's an executor, the executor is appointed. If there's an administrator, if there's not an executor, that there's an administrator appointed. They do all that. That's one way. So you have to wait to die. Then the judge makes a decision based on your will where the property goes. For some people, usually people when they get fairly large estates, what they'll do is they'll put their property in trust, which means is that you take almost all of the things that you own, and instead of holding it in like Pat Hogarty and Mary Hogarty, it would be as in the Pat Hogarty, Mary Hogarty Trust. And the trust is a document or is an entity that is living. So that therefore when you die, instead of the property going to the probate court, it already has that decision's been made and is put in this entity called the trust. So the trust just, just starts managing the property and you reduce the amount of expenses that you have to pay because you're not going to court, okay? All this essentially means, this part here is saying transfer the property to or from a trust which is revocable. Revocable means that you can change it during your lifetime. If it was irrevocable, means that you put it in there and you can't change your mind. Revocable means, hey, I can put it in and I can decide a couple years later to take it back out again. Uh, for the benefit of a grantor, which happens to be the person that put it in there, remember grantor is the person granting it, or a spouse of which reverts back to the grantor or the spouse which is less than 12 years. Okay, so that's all it's doing. It's talking about putting property in the trust and taking it back out again. Okay, um, which essentially means you haven't sold it. All you're doing is you just, you know, for the lack of a better word, you're sort of changing the title is all you're doing. You're not really transferring it. You notice with a lot of these, you're not selling it. You're only more or less changing it to a degree. 
A change in the method of holding title between co-owners without changing the proportional interest in the co uh, of the co-owners. Same thing. Different way of holding property. Joint tenants, tenants in common. Okay, that's what we're talking about. Recording of a deed of trust giving security for a loan. This means that, hey, you know what, if I go down to the bank and I get a brand new loan, I refinance my house, and I get a brand new loan on the house, okay, do I have to have it reassessed? The answer to that is no, okay? And what they're talking about here when they say recording of a deed of trust and giving security uh, for the loan, it just means it's like you do with anything else. When you get the loan, you, remember you have a note and a deed of trust. The deed of trust is the document that's recorded at the county recorder's office showing that the, that the property is security for the loan. Okay, that does not transfer, does not trigger you to pay any more property taxes. Transfer of a minority interest in a corporation. Okay, same thing. Okay. Transfers of minority partnership interest. Okay, minority means smaller, smaller than 50%. Okay. Any transfer of the lesser's interest in a taxable real property subject to the lease with a remaining term of 35 years, that has a lot of gobbledygook, but it just says any transfer of the lessor, lessor means the person that's leasing the property out, the, uh, how could you say, the landlord, that's who the lessor is. Remember, a lessee is the tenant, lessor. Interest in the taxable real property subject to the lessee with a remaining term of 35 years with less than 35 years just means that if the term is, remember, we can have leases that can go for a long period of time. The standard leases, they can go as high as 99 years. So we're talking about less than 35 years. Or replacement of the property taken by condemnation. Okay? Okay. So the concept here is this. What I want to get through, and this gives you a rough idea, what you want to get through is that if a client asks you, is the property going to be reassessed based on, the, on what I am going to do? You're going to want to do some research. You're going to probably want to put them in contact with the county tax assessor's office to ask that question. Because what you don't want to do is do something and then find out later on that if you, you violated some little part of it, and guess what, now you ended up in a big reassessment. And the problem with that is, is that this can get to be a very expensive process. I mean, you can have literally two houses sitting right next door to each other. One house was bought in, say, the late, uh, the early 80s, and maybe all you paid for it was maybe, you know, $75,000, $80,000, and the property taxes haven't gone up that much. And right next door to it, there can be a house that sold last year for five or six hundred thousand. And this guy that has his property that bought for five or six hundred thousand dollars, he's paying, you know, like five or six thousand dollars a year. And the guy next door to him is maybe paying twelve or thirteen hundred dollars a year. It's a big, significant difference in price, and so or in taxes. So you really want to keep in mind that this is a very important thing you want to think about and check and make sure you get the right information. Okay. So anyway, I think we pretty much covered that. Okay, um, they talk about property taxes and property taxes timetable. One of the things that you want to kind of keep in mind is that in order for you to, you cannot own a piece of property and call up the county tax collector and say, listen, I just want to send you a check. They'll say, what do you want me to send me a check for? And you say, well, I just want to pay you some property taxes. And they say, well, you don't owe any property taxes. So the concept here is, is that the first thing that happens in the process is that your property 
has an assessment and it becomes a lien. A lien just like any other lien, like a, like a mechanics lien or a, an IRS lien or anything else. In other words, the lien just means I owe, you owe money. Then you're given a period of time in which you have time to pay that lien. <laughs> okay. Then if you don't pay the lien in time, then you, you're assessed any kind of penalties for it. Okay. So where this becomes important from a real estate standpoint is when you're sitting there with your client calculating the net sheets, calculating how much they're going to get out of this transaction when they sell the property, and you're trying to figure out what the property taxes are and just getting a rough idea. Okay. So down here it says property taxes become a lien. It says property taxes are in effect liens against specific property. Business personnel property taxes also become liens against specific real property on the same tax bill. For example, furniture in a furnished apartment is taxed as business personal property and is usually included in the property tax bill. People don't realize that, but that's true. Property taxes for the following fiscal year become fiscal year. We, property taxes are fiscal year means that we're not talking about our normal tax year ends December 31st and the new tax year starts in January. Fiscal year, what happens is it runs halfway through there. So it'll, the fiscal start ends on June and starts in July. Okay, It's like midway through the year after the first six months. So this is property taxes for the following fiscal year become a lien against the real property on January 1st of the current year, officially the first installment for the first half of the taxes becomes due in November and becomes delinquent after 5 p.m. on December 10th. So we have dates that we need to know when it is a lien, when it has to be paid, and when it becomes, you know, when you're late with it. The second installment is due on February 1st and is delinquent if not paid by 5 p.m. on April 10th. If either the December 10th, December 10th or April 15th fails, falls on a Saturday or Sunday or a legal holiday, the delinquency date is extended to the close of the next business day. You know, I'll tell you where people find that they have a problem with property taxes. As I've mentioned many times before, when we buy our first property, usually we do not have the $20,000, $40,000 to put as a down payment. Now, if you take a look in Sacramento today, if I was going to buy what we consider to be an average house, a median-priced house, it would be somewhere in the neighborhood of about $350,000. If you take a look at that, that means that most people are going to have to put down, if they, don't, if they want to use conventional financing, they would have to put down about $70,000 as a down payment. And because a lot of us don't have $70,000 when we get ready to buy our first house, we normally go and get somebody to help us. And usually in most cases, it's like the Veterans Administration or FHA or CalVet or some kind of a program where we carry a first and a second. There's something going on to help us with that first down payment. And when we do that in the beginning years, what happens is, is those lenders will say to us, listen, we recognize you don't have a lot of money at risk. We recognize that this is probably your first house. And so what we're going to do is ask you to take and put aside in something called an impound account six months' worth of uh, taxes and a year's worth of fire insurance. And you may own the house for 15, 20 years, and you, you get these pro Usually what happens is you buy the house, you get the property tax bill, you look at the property tax bill, and first thing you probably do is you either call your real estate agent say what in the world is this 
or you panic and think, oh my God, I'm going to have to pay $1,500, you know, where am I going to get the money from? Or you talk to, you know, uh, you're going to call the county tax collector. You're going to call somebody. And after the first couple times, you get, once you realize that you're already paying that, when you pay your principal interest taxes and insurance, you're going to kind of take a breather. And then every year after you get your property tax bill, you're probably not going to pay attention to it anymore because it's all automatically being taken care of. Um, where people usually run into the fact of not paying their property taxes on time is usually people that have owned the house for a considerable period of time and have usually put down enough money that they have quite a bit of equity and the lender no longer requires them to impound the money. So now what you have to do is you have to remember, hey, when I get that tax bill, I actually do have to pay those taxes. That's usually what ends up happening. Um, what they're doing here is they're just reiterating those dates, which is a little bit easier, hopefully, for you to remember. They give you a little name to remember. No darn fooling around. It's just for a way to remember that the N is no, D for da or darn, D for darn, F for fooling, and A for around, meaning no darn fooling around. Pay your property taxes on time. It's the first letter of each one of those months to help you to remember when they happen to be. Okay. The next thing that we want to talk about here when it comes to property taxes is, is your property tax bill. Okay. What's going to happen is that you're going to get this bill, or your clients are, they're going to get this tax bill uh, during the year, and you may be asking them what their property taxes are, and you're going to have to be at least familiar with how to read this tax bill. I'm going to go through fairly quickly with what this is so that you're familiar with what's here. I'm going to blow it up. Okay. First of all, notice that this is an annual property tax bill. Uh, cities, counties, schools, and other taxing agency in, the, in Los Angeles County. So this is where the tax bill is from. It's for secured property tax bill for this fiscal year. It's giving you the fiscal year, which starts July 1st, 2003, and ends June 30th, 2004 gives you the name of the treasurer and it tells you a phone number to call if you need some help. They won't help you pay the bill, but they'll call you if they think that you they you know if you think that they've made a mistake. Over here on the left hand side, they're giving you some additional information. One thing that some people the first time they they see this, they have no idea what this is and it's called an assessor's ID number. Some of us call it an assessor's parcel number. What this amounts to is, if you really think about it, just like when you have MasterCard or Visa or any other kind of a bill, you have an account number. In other words, if you want to find out, you know, if you want to purchase something over the telephone, they'll take your first name, last name, and the next thing they're going to ask you is, what is your account number? Okay, so you have a number. You have a bank account number. You have a checking account number. You have a number that tracks all of the financial transactions that are going through. For properties, for real estate, we have something called an assessor's parcel number. That is the account number. So if you call the county tax assessor and say, excuse me, my name is Pat, Pat Hogarty, and I want to find out some information about my tax bill, the next words out of their mouth, even if you probably give them your property address, they're probably going to say, which would make it easier for them, <clears throat> they'll say, what's your parcel number? And your parcel number is the one that they're tracking all of the money, all the assessments, the costs, where the money is going to go, just like you would MasterCard, Visa, or whatever. It's your bill. This is, it says, the owner of the, uh, of the record as of, this just tells you 
the date that you own the property. This is the mailing address, which may not be the same as the property tax. If, for example, if you own rental property, you may find out that your tax bills are going to your own personal residence because that's where you are getting all of your bills for your properties, but the actual property that's being assessed is someplace else. Um, let me see down here. I'm looking for this. Okay, I'm going to go all the way down the bottom. This happens to be right here. This talks about the property location, and this is saying track number, and then it's a condominium. It's unit number two. This is giving you the assessor's uh, regional office, where they're located. Okay, so you can get that. This over here on the right is showing you essentially where your money is going. Again, it's reiterating the parcel number right here. Get this sort of straightened out. And it's showing you when they break down this percent where all that money is going. In other words, where your money. So you're paying some of this to the city of Los Angeles, some to Metro Water District, flood control, community colleges, unified school districts. In other words, it's showing you how that money is being split out to fund those agencies. Okay? And then this is more or less just showing you a dollar breakdown of where this is going. All right? Down the bottom down here is showing you what the total taxes that are due are $1,038.61. It's showing you that the first installment is $519. The second installment is $519.30. Okay? So that gives you an idea where it is. This is just for your information. This is how they establish the value. They're showing you that you have, um, you have land, and the value of the land is $43,828, and that the total taxable amount that they can tax you on is that, that you have improvements on the land to the tune of $39,090. So that's showing you what your assessed value is on the property. This right here is showing you with what, now this is showing you the total here, and I've never done this math here, um, I cannot even see it to be honest with you, but it looks to me like it's, uh, this would be eight, this is nine and two is 11. What they mean here, and I haven't really done this math uh, out completely, but what they're talking about here is, is that you have a total uh, amount of uh, valuation that the property is based on, and they're saying that this is less an exemption. And I'll talk later about an exemption, but what an exemption is, is that in California, you have something called a homeowner's exemption. The homeowner's exemption is $7,000. What it means is you can take $7,000 off the assessed value of the property. So as an example, in this particular case, what I have to believe by seeing this is that this property is actually being assessed at that amount plus $7,000. So they've, they're saying that this is total assessment less that exemption okay so just so you know how that comes up and you if you have a home that you live in you have to file for the exemption which ends up being when you do the math about seventy dollars a year in property taxes but the point is is that when you own a property they really unless you tell them they don't know for sure whether or not you live there or not so as an example if you buy a brand new, if you buy a house to live in, and it's your principal residence that you live in, you call the county tax assessor's office and then ask them or request for them to send you this 
homeowner's exemption. You fill it out. You send it back to them. Uh, if they do it and it covers the whole year, you'll get the whole $70, you know, in, uh, less in, property uh, in your property tax bill. If, if, it's, if you've owned it for less than a year or something else, they'll prorate it. But the thing is, you have to file the paperwork. Now, let's say you live in that house for, say, five years, and then you decide, hey, you know what, I'm going to buy another house, I'm going to move out, but I'm going to keep that house as a rental. And the new house that you buy, you have to reapply for this property tax exemption, which essentially means I'm going to have it on the new house, but I'm going to take the exemption off the old house because I no longer live there. It's a, a rental property. Okay? Just so you know that. All right? Um, okay. So I think that that kind of beats that to death. On the back of this document is going to show you the installment coupon. Did you have a question? Yes, a uh, gentleman back here on the left-hand side had a question. Um, it says, why does it, I thought it was 1% property tax. Why does it push your button? Push your button when you talk. I am. Okay, go ahead okay. and talk again. Why is it, why is it saying, um, I thought it was 1% of the value of the house. It says here that it's 82918 Wouldn't that be, why is he paying uh, over $1,000 then? Um... That's a good question without me checking out everything in the book. Basically, what you're saying is if it's 1%, it should be $820. Um, I don't know. I'd have to go back and see when they bought the property, how long they've held it, what their particular assessment happens to be. Because if the property was purchased prior to that year that Prop 13 was implemented, what they did is they did a rollback on the property. Okay, so I don't know without going any further. You know, I'm just going with the information they present me. I don't know. I can't answer your question. I don't know why they did that without calling the author. You know, I don't know. You know, I, I just don't know without calling the author how he came up with that. That's a good question, though. Yeah, he could have owned this thing for a whole bunch of years. No, I mean, basically what's happening is, is that it's, it's, it's telling you that that's what his assessed value is, and it's 1% of that assessed value. But if you think back, we can go back and look, but when you look in the Proposition 13, it depends upon when you owned the property and acquired it, okay? And it's reassessed so many, what is it, 2% per year? of the. So that's why you could end up with two different values. Okay. The fair market, yeah. Okay. <sighs> Always another question. I can't remember right now, but I think that that's the reason why. He must have owned this property for a considerable period of time. Right. You know, So this is not at this date. It, what it is is he's maybe owned it, for, I guess, from 70-something maybe. I don't know. Anyway, this is the tax coupon he's going to pay. He's got a first and a second. Okay, this is the second. This is the first. Okay. This is just giving you over here the uh, mailing address. Okay, and it's just telling you, you, in other words, it's like any other coupon. You take the coupon, you tear it off, you stick it in an envelope, put your check in it, send it out to the tax assessor, okay? And you get two of those coupons with the tax bill. You send one when the first one's due, one when the second one's due. And that's pretty much it, okay? Down below, they give you a little chart, and they just tell you here that January 1, the property taxes become a lien. July 1 is when the fiscal year starts. This is telling you that November 1st, the first installment is due November 1st and delinquent on December 10th after 10 o'clock. And then the same thing they're doing over here under February, saying second installment is due in February 1st and is delinquent on April 10th 
at 5 p.m. Okay, it's just giving you the chart. It's just breaking it out where the money goes or you know what the time span is. Uh, let's see. This is one thing that I thought was important that you would want to know about. Um, this is called supplementary property tax bills. And what's important about this is that when you get ready to buy a brand new house, and let me read what this is. It says, the law requires reassessment of property immediately after it changes ownership or after the new construction is completed. While the amount of the supplemental assessment is still determined in accordance with the Prop 13, the actual effect is to speed up the assessment of the property. The office, uh, the office of Assessor enters into the new property value onto the assessment rolls as of the first of the month following the month in which the property changes ownership or new construction is completed. Uh, depending upon the date your client purchased the property or the date construction is completed, he or she will receive one or more supplementary bills in addition to his or her regular tax bill. Uh, taxes on the supplemental tax roll become a lien against the property, real property on the date in which uh, uh, ownership has changed or the new construction is completed. Essentially what this is is that the property taxes that were collected on that property were based at the old value. Okay, the old value. And what they're, all they're doing is they're saying that you're probably going to get, I had this happen to me, I got something in the mail that showed the new assessment, you know, a couple, I think it was maybe a month or two after I actually moved into the house. So just to keep in mind, to tell your clients, and you may want to call the county in which the property is located and say, listen, just for my own information, I understand that when, you know, when we sell property here in this county, that what's going to happen is you're going to use this rate and then explain it to them and then it's going to be reassessed when could my clients expect to get this new tax bill okay and they can tell you all right uh, it's kind of important that you know about this this is the uh, thing that I just mentioned before which is the homeowners property tax exemption uh, it says the homeowners property tax exemption is the deduction of the property tax bill of the first seven thousand dollars in assessed value in owner occupied property not on rental property, owner-occupied, very important. And you also need to make sure that if you're going to have clients that are going to buy the property, I would take the time to call the county tax assessor and make sure you find out whatever their process or procedure happens to be. Remember, it's, very, it's not uncommon for you to maybe be selling, because you're living here in Sacramento, to maybe sell a property in El Dorado County, maybe Yolo County, Placer County, Sacramento County. So you may find out that there's different phone numbers, different processes that they go through. So it doesn't hurt to go and find out what that is and notify the clients. In fact, I think it's a good idea for you to have like a checklist for clients to use when they move in, you know, such as everything from the mundane stuff, such as starting up the trash collection and the, you know, the sewer and the water and, and the electrical bill and the garbage, but also about these other things, such as property tax exemption, stuff like that, and give it to the client so that they know what it is. It's a nice little detail you can provide for them. I would hate like heck to have a client that, you're, that you sold the house to call you back up, you know, um, a couple years later and say, you know what, this is a small item, but I could have saved about, you know, a couple hundred dollars in property taxes if you had told me about this. It's kind of a nice thing to let people know. Um, 
It says here the homeowner's exemption on a home does, not, does the following. All personal property of the homeowner is exempt from personal property taxes. That's very important. Okay. Second thing, a resident owner receives a $7,000 homeowner's exemption in assessed value if the property is the principal residence uh, on the 1st of March. Okay. And then right here it tells you advise your buyers to, to file that exemption right here. Okay. And then down here it gives you a little example. It says qualifying owner-occupied residential property receives $7,000 homeowner's exemption. For example, an assessed value of $500,000 minus the homeowner's exemption of $7,000, which means that the property is assessed for 400, 493,000. Prop 13 tax rate is 1% of the $7,000 exemption. So your buyer's tax savings in reality is only $70. It's not a lot, but it's something you want to tell them about. Okay, very important. Also, another thing too, from your standpoint of prospecting, which has nothing to do with this, but if you wanted to be able to go through and see which properties in a certain neighborhood were owner-occupied and which were non-owner-occupied, the chances are you could pull the tax rolls and look for properties. If you were looking for people that maybe owned something that were out of town that maybe wanted to sell their property, you know, their investment property or something, you could look for all those properties that don't have the homeowner's exemption. It's a pretty good chance that they're probably all rental properties. The other thing, too, is that if you're looking at a neighborhood and you're trying to figure out how much of it is owner-occupied versus non-owner-occupied, you could look at how many homes have this exemption versus how many don't have the exemption. And if you're dealing in a residential neighborhood that has where most of the people are rentals, you know, in other words, they don't have the exemption, you probably, before you ever get in your car, could probably figure out that when you drove through that neighborhood, it's not going to look too good. <laughs> I mean, just, just, just those things kind of go together when you're, when you're working on this. Um, you also have some other things that you need to be aware of that may or may not fit clients. Notice I said may or may not fit. Also, you need to be aware of the fact that these things change. So you need to be up to speed on whatever the current law is. And what this is, is that it's, it's a, it's, um, this is another tax thing. It's called Disabled or Senior Citizens Property Tax Postponement. Now, notice the word postponement. It doesn't say give up, doesn't say quit, doesn't ever say dot pay. It means you're putting off the payment of the property taxes. And the reason why you would want to do this is because somebody is either retired or disabled, and by doing that, it will save them money, especially if their monthly income is low. Okay? So down here it says senior citizens who are 62 years of age or older and have a household income of $24,000 or less may qualify for tax postponement assistance. Okay? Notice that that's not a very high income. It's a fairly low income, so it's to help our friends that maybe are living on Social Security or maybe a disability pension plan, something along that line, who are still living in a house that they own. The program offers them the option of having the state pay all or part of the taxes on their homes. In return, a lien is placed on the property for the amount that the state has to pay. A specific lien becomes payable when the taxpayer moves or dies. So in other words, if they're, if, if they're going to, uh, you know, the idea is they need enough income for somebody to take care of them or, you know, to eat food or whatever, and they want to save money, they can do that. But when they die and they leave the house, then the bill has to be paid, okay, or they move. 
The specific lien becomes payable when the tax, okay, in effect, the homeowner is relieved of his or her tax burden in exchange for a lien on the property to be paid upon death. California has extended the program to include persons under the age of 62 who are legally disabled. Legally disabled typically, I'm not saying always, but usually means that you are, the doctor has said that you're disabled. And usually, you're, you're, if you're eligible for Social Security, you're getting some kind of Social Security disability payment or the insurance company that you have is paying you a disability on a long-term thing, some way to prove that not only did the doctor say that, but you're proving you do. Again, if you had somebody that fell into this category, you would want to go ahead and find out more information about it. You also have another type of exemption called a veteran's exemption. Says any California resident who served in the military during a time of war is entitled to an annual $4,000 property tax exemption against the assessed value of the property. Okay, which is like it's like the uh, homeowner's exemption. This exemption also applies to widow, widowed mother, or per, uh, pension father of a deceased veteran. Okay, so this might be somebody that falls into the category. For disabled uh, California veterans who qualify, however, the assessment limit can be raised to $100,000. Now, let me just take a minute and explain what that is. Uh, there are a number of us, <laughs> I'm one that's included, that served in the military and have something what we call a service-connected disability. And under a service-connected disability, depending upon how disabled you are, you have certain benefits that come with that. Typically, you've given up a lot to get those benefits, but you have them. Usually people out of falling into this category usually are fairly close, if not all the way, what we consider to be 100% disabled, which typically means, and that is a very, how could you say, it? it's not an exact or a precise uh, decision. What it is is that the Veterans Administration has had you come in, you have something that's service-connected, they have given you a physical, and they have said you are, and they award you a letter that say you are 100% disabled, Okay doesn't mean that you're in a wheelchair or something. It just be, it's just a term that they use. Um, you've got to find out that once you, you uh, achieve, not that this is even an achievement, but once you get to a certain level of disability, there may be other benefits that you may have, such as I think in certain cases if you have two cars, you can have where maybe you only have to pay the registration fees on one but not the other. But again, it has to do with your level of disability, and you call the appropriate office, and they'll tell you whether you're qualified or not. In this case, you'd call the property tax assessor's office, yes, and, or, or, or collector's office. One of the, you could talk to somebody and say, hey, I'm a vet. This is what I have. I have this disability. Am I qualified? And they'll tell you. This, in this case, would apply to maybe clients, if not yourself, and also parents. And by the way, sometimes those disabilities get worse as you get older. People will start out with a disability as 10% of a problem. Then a few years later, it might be 20. And before you know it, before their life ends, they're at 100% because whatever the problem was has gotten progressively worse. Okay. Um, okay. I think property taxes are on the same problem. Okay. Okay. Veteran cannot have a veteran's exemption and a homeowner's exemption tax on the same property. Okay, just so that you know that. Okay, so again, I encourage you to find out if you think that there's somebody that may, that you may have that may qualify for that. Okay. Um, okay. We're getting pretty close to the end now, but we have a few more things that we want to go over. Next thing is, is something called a special tax assessment. Special tax assessment. 
And um, I'm going to kind of read this so that, and then I'll talk about what it is. It says a special tax assessment is levied by the city of the count, by the city council or the county board of supervisors, which with voters' approval for the cost of a specific local improvement, such as streets, sewers, irrigation, or, dist or drainage. Assessments differ from property taxes in that the property taxes finance the general functions of the government and go into a general fund, whereas a special assessment is levied once, usually by the city of the county or improvement district, for a particular work or improvement. So what we're talking about is that you may have something like, um, may live in a neighborhood in which you decide that you need, you have a drainage problem or, you know what, it's really unsafe in the area, people are getting hurt, we need to have some street lights to light the place up at night, there could be any of that. And what will happen is, is that you cannot get the money from the, um, from the county property taxes because there's no money to be given. That's running just the normal functions of the government. Now you're trying to do something in addition to that. So that's what we're talking about, special assessment, special, on top of. So you may very well have a property tax bill and, in addition to that, a special assessment that you're paying for something that is improving your area. I'll read this real quick and so that we'll go through this. This is, as a rule, the district issues its own bonds to finance particular improvements such as water distribution systems, parking facilities, street lighting, and many other types of developments. To repay the funds borrowed through the bonds issue, these districts have power to assess all lands included in the district. One minute. Such loans constitute liens on the land until paid. These liens can be foreclosed by sale, a particular tax bill, and have priority over private property interests. Okay, that's just the fact that these are special assessments that are going to be involving your specific property or maybe your neighborhood. Okay? You need to be aware of that so that you can ask your client, if you're listing a property, hey, is there any special assessments? Your client's required to disclose if they have any special assessments. These are not bad things. They're good things. They're ways that we can improve, <laughs> improve the neighborhood, if you will. Okay? So with that, we're pretty much going to be ending up at that point right now. Um, when we come back the next time, we'll talk a little bit more about some improvement, bond improvement acts, some other things called Melarus, and then income taxes. So we have quite a bit more to cover, very important stuff, and we'll see you back here the next time for show number 21. Thank you very much.